Happy Friday, one and all. This is the New Mexico in Focus podcast for Friday, July 31st, 2020. Another jam-packed show this week. A lot of it having to do with COVID-19. Again, we taped our show before the governor held her weekly press conference where she did announce that she was extending the public health order through August in an attempt to allow for in-person schooling to continue after Labor Day, which is the current plan. That will all depend on whether or not the cases and the hospital management can stay under control here in the month of August. But basically that means no in-dining at restaurants still, no mass gatherings and mask mandates for everybody when you're out in public. We're going to start off, though, talking about uh, that public health order and uh, the sort of defiance that is now coming about around that. We had the city of Roswell come out this week, as well as some other elected officials basically saying they didn't support the governor's approach and weren't going to be enforcing or mandating it for their communities. So we're going to talk a lot about that this week. Joining us on the line, we have line regular Serge Martinez from the UNM Law School. We have Crystal Ciarza from the Ciarza Digital Group, as well as friend of the show and recent retiree Steve Terrell, formerly of the Santa Fe New Mexican. Thrilled to have all of them with us this week. And want to point out before we get into this that next Tuesday we will be helping to live stream a state Supreme Court hearing it's oral arguments that basically is trying to outline what exactly the governor's authority is in terms of the public health order and some of these restrictions around businesses, especially restaurants. There have been a lot of uh, challenges to that, and this one particular hearing is actually or cases brought by the governor's office to try to outline and reinforce what they think the authority of the administration is Uh, to expedite a lot of these challenges as they come up. So that will be 9 o'clock Tuesday morning. You'll be able to watch that on the NMPBS YouTube and Facebook pages, uh, and we'll for sure be talking about that next week as well. Right now, let's talk more about some of the pushback and the ongoing effort to curb COVID-19 here in New Mexico with host Gene Grant and The Line. Mayors and other political leaders around the state are defying the governor's public health orders, saying to follow them would mean ruin for their communities. The governor, meanwhile, says we could lose hundreds more New Mexicans to COVID-19 and have lasting health impacts for thousands of people if New Mexicans don't take her seriously. That's where the line begins tonight, this odyssey that's been going on this week. I'm joined by line regular and UNM Law School professor Serge Martinez. He may be retired, but he certainly isn't retiring. That's former reporter for the Santa Fe New Mexican, Steve Terrell. Great to have you back. And joining us as a guest, one of our favorites from Sierra Social Digital, Crystal Sierra, the owner and president of that company. Now, Crystal, let me start with you. As a political play, what do you make of the defiance we've seen from places? I'm going to pick Roswell first. What are you, what are you feeling from Roswell right now? Um, it is not an easy time to be a politician. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I will say that you can already start to hear, um, you know, at, at first the tone of the governor's administration was collaboration and working together. Mm-hmm. Now it's a tone of obvious frustration. And um, if, if collaboration is not key, it's do as I say. Uh, and obviously you can see that, you know, South, as, as somebody said in the uh, Albuquerque Journal articles referencing the mayor's, um, you know, uh, being so defiant on the order, um, you know, you can, you can tell that it's a very much a North, Northern New Mexico versus Southern New Mexico type of battle or reinforcing urban versus countryside, you know, the, the country, right. you know, um, sure. or the uh, rural parts, I should say, um, of New Mexico. And so, um, you know, the, even seeing Clovis, New Mexico, Mayor um, uh, Mayor Mike, as we call him, Mayor Mike Morris, a good friend. Um, he's obvious. He's a first-term mayor, and he's seeing challenges of, of, of respecting the order. A long-term mayor, Mayor Hull in Rio Rancho. I sit on his economic recovery um, and um, uh, uh, business task force. 
Um, he's seeing major challenges, especially since he was the chair of the mayor's council. Um, obviously, the mayor in Roswell's just completely saying no. And, and I, we have to give the mayors a lot of credit because of the fact that they are doing what they can considering what they have to run into. Like Mayor, um, uh, Mayor Tim Keller in Albuquerque, obviously doing he, what he can um, by inf not only enforcing it, but also um, going the extra mile to uh, uh, do advocacy work on washing your right. hands. And so That's on, right. So That's exactly there right. Really, there really is no easy answer. And it's, it's such a conflict to see what the mayors are possibly doing. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. the mayors are always in a, in a position of, do I, I get elected by my local and municipal um, government or I, I get elected by my local people. Right. Um, I, I have to serve them. Right? right. And so it let doesn't, me, let me, let me, yeah. let me, uh, let me kind of swing Steve in here real quick. Sorry, Crystal, my fault there. Um, Steve, the idea that a lot of the mayors hung their sort of approach on the fact that they had fewer cases in many of those counties than other parts of the state. But now that a lot of those cases are ticking up in those very counties, does that not prove the governor's point and, and disprove their point? Or how should they be seeing this if, if cases are going up in their local areas? Yeah, if the point is uh, we don't need to abide by this because uh, we're not as bad as Albuquerque or whatever. Um, yeah, that's only a matter of time before uh, the, the virus doesn't care where the county line is or uh, where the uh, about anything like that. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, I, I think it's a precarious thing. Uh, uh, it's true that um, mayors are under a lot of pressure, you know, um, and God, no one likes to see in their favorite restaurant going out of business. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was talking to, a, I went got some uh, takeout from one of my favorite Chinese places here in uh, Santa Fe. And uh, the waitress receptionist who I've known for many years, uh, she said, you know, I am not uh, happy about the fact that, uh, we may be having to reopen soon. What, you know, what if some guy with COVID blows his nose and I have to pick up his napkin? You know, uh, she was worried about her own safety. Right. And uh, so I, I, that's one point of view that uh, we know the Restaurant Association has uh, filed lawsuits and stuff, but uh, um, the workers themselves, you know, could be in danger. And so um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a complex situation because like I said, no one likes to see their I'm sick of my own cooking. <laughs> uh, I'm eating no out of the food right food. I'm not even any business, really, but, uh, That's right. Hey, Serge, um, 18 New Mexico mayors sent a letter to the governor saying, hey, you know, we a little more individual look here instead of a wide brush might be uh, appropriate here. But let me read you something the, the governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, wrote in her op-ed in the journal that Dennis Kintai, uh, former uh, legislator here, an FBI agent here in Southern New Mexico responded to. Let me read what the governor said, because it's, it's worth kind of going over this again. Last paragraph. And when we reach the other side of my administration, and we'll, let me start again. And when we reach the other side, my administration will take a long, hard look at how the state can ensure that those local officials who have decided they will not protect their constituents amid an unprecedented crisis no longer have the opportunity to fail them. It, that's an interesting little broadside across the bow, isn't it? It's, it's, it's become very political, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm, in terms of what a legal authority the governor might have on that front, I think it's obviously it's more of a, a threat, an, a semi-empty threat. But mm -hmm. in terms of pitting the, you know, the, the state administration against local mayors, you know that's not going to be good for anybody, and not good for not good for New Mexico, not good for any of the towns or the or the state or or any of the parties involved. Well, let, um, sirs, sirs, let me ask you this: We have some court cases come up. One that we'll have yep. on YouTube, our YouTube channel next Tuesday, mm -hmm. that might decide some of this as Republicans battle the governor over her authority to impose fines in uh, restrict businesses. What, what's your sense of of this? Not asking for a prediction, certainly, but what's your sense of of the suit in next Tuesday's hearing? Uh, you know, I am, New Mexico has, to, you know, I don't know that anybody who's living can take the blame for this, but by saying we're going to have a part-time legislature and a part-time, you know, of a civilian legislature, we have decided we're going to give lots of authority to the governor. And I think, you know, who can say what's going to happen? But I think 
the, the setup we have here is one that in a moment like this, there's going to be a lot of deference paid to the executive because she is the one who is you know, in a position and able to be agile and keep and re react to things. And so I think um, the, the, the court has not shown a lot of inclination to second guess her thus far. And I think that you know, we, because of the setup we have in many states, they'd say, let's ask the legislature. We don't have really that option here. And so right. I, my sense is that you know, the uniquely New Mexican way is going to um, play out in a, as we've seen for the last several months, right? No, there's been no inclination from anybody with a, like well, from the courts to challenge or um, get in the way of the governor's man managing of the situation. And when the legislature was there, they had the opportunity. They came, spent three days and left. A good point there. I, I appreciate it. Hey, Chris, we've got about 30 seconds, but I want to get you in here real quick. Is the governor in a, a potential danger here of being seen as a paper tiger? I ask that because there's a lot of folks out there defying her, but no one's really getting dinged on this, are they? You know, I, I don't know. I, I can't say for sure if whether or not she is being a paper tiger or not, but I think um, she, it's, it's kind of like in a position of what's, if she doesn't take action and if she doesn't show her leadership, how true of a leader is she actually for our state? And if anything, I think her, her leadership is really what we're um, banking on. And unfortunately, like the restaurant association, and I'll, I'll wrap this up really quickly, like the restaurant mm -hmm. association is in a difficult spot because of a lack of transparency. And I think from the government, and, and you know, even though the New Mexico Restaurant Association is kind of right, there's a lack of transparency in, in this decision-making process. Right. I think from the governor's perspective, it's rushed and it's rushed for good reason because it's a public health crisis. And that's what we always have to remember outside of the politics. Good point there, we'll have to leave it there. But on that note, as the COVID-19 pandemic rolls over into the next school year, schools are preparing to have kids learning online, as you know, at least until September 8th. This leaves parents scratching their heads, wondering how they're gonna both work and make sure their kids are learning. Correspondent Megan Kamrick talked to nurse and mother Bridget Montoya about how her job treating COVID patients and her kids' online education can be at odds. Still top of most people's minds, especially parents, is the return to school here in a couple weeks. Again, just a reminder, it is all virtual now, online, through at least Labor Day. That was what the governor lined out. Then they hope to go to the hybrid model with some days in school, other days online. Again, as we try to curb and uh, flatten the curve of COVID-19, time will tell exactly how that will play out. But it's a big concern for educators, administrators, school nurses, also definitely parents trying to figure out how to balance their already disrupted work lives and making sure their kids get the education opportunities, educational opportunities that they deserve. It is a hefty lift for sure. Everyone struggled through it last spring and now starting right back in the same boat, not to mention all the challenges of new classrooms, new teachers. Uh, it's going to be a challenge for sure. We had the opportunity to talk to Bridget Montoya this week. She has a really interesting perspective on this. She's got two young children, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. She just also so happens to be a nurse at UNMH uh, that deals with COVID patients. And so she sees all angles of this and uh, talks very frankly about the challenges it presents for her and her family. She's a single mother. She's got to have protocol for when she gets home from work about disinfecting herself and her clothing and her vehicle uh, and then gets to turn around and try to help support her children uh, in their educational pursuits. So just a really fascinating conversation. We appreciate, appreciate Bridget being willing to share her thoughts with us. Here's correspondent Megan Kamrick. Thank you so much, Bridget, for joining us. Uh, Bridget, schools will be going fully online until at least September 8th. As a full-time nurse and a single mother, what does that mean for you? Uh, it's, it's very difficult. Actually, I have two kids going to two different schools in two different grades. And getting that news was um, very shocking because now I have to figure out how I'm going to get both of them on track online at the same time every single day. And a lot when we went on this quarantine last year, it was hard because they both had Zoom meetings for different projects, different classrooms at the same time. 
and trying to kind of like corral them to get their homework done was nearly impossible. And the schools were giving me different websites almost every single day that I had to log on to at this time and turn in paperwork. And I was talking to other parents um, that went to different schools and they said, oh, my kids got their grades and whatever grade they were at at that point is where they were. And that was not the case for my kids. So they were not only flooded with work and trying to navigate through the internet. And we, where I live, we don't have the best internet for this, the optimum speed or anything, and it's not available to us. So it's very difficult for me, especially because I need to sleep during the day so I can work at night. Yeah. Well, how does this affect your work too? You have a very demanding job. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very hard for sure. It's, you know, before I could drop them off at school, kind of sneak in a few hours of sleep and then pick them up and go to work and be fine. And now I'm just going to have to kind of power through it and make sure they stay on task and they're logged in and that I can kind of get my work schedule wrapped around it. This decision puts the burden of both parent and teacher on you. Do you think you can be on the front line of this pandemic and make sure your kids are doing their coursework? God, I hope so. It is very, very difficult. I, being the teacher element, like I did not sign up for that. I'm not, I'm not able to, especially when there was no online instruction with it. It was just a website with these assignments. And, and it was like five websites in my daughter's case and going through, navigating through those five websites, trying to keep her on task was like nearly impossible. And then I had to go back to my son and get him through his, go through Google docs and then go back to the school and go to these websites and turn things in. And I struggled with it myself because I don't even know that content. I don't know what they're doing. All of a sudden I'm thrown into the fifth grade and the seventh grade all over again with new material that I never learned when I was that age. This sounds so challenging. On top of this, do you have at-home safety protocols for when you come back from work? Well, I'm fortunate to work. I do work as a COVID nurse at night and we've been COVID since February. And I'm fortunate like we have PPE available to us. I wipe down my car before I get in. I sanitize my shoes there. We change out of our own scrubs into the hospital scrubs before and after our shift. When I get home, I have a bleach bucket. I put my shoes in. I wash my scrubs separately. I shower. I don't see the kids or touch them till after I've showered. I wipe down the entire car. It's, it's a process in, in itself just to come in the house to make sure that I don't pass anything to them. After Labor Day, the kids might start to go back to school with public schools offering an alternative online option for all students, um, online only. So as a healthcare professional, but also a mother, which option will you be choosing and why? Well, the schools have told me kind of we're kind of at standstill. There isn't a definite answer on either one. There's no definitive answer as to what we're doing. So it's kind of like hold your breath and wait. Um, seeing the ramifications this COVID-19 has had, it's very difficult for me to say I feel comfortable sending the kids to school only because I've seen, I've seen people die very quickly from the virus. I've seen people turn. I've seen it affect every age group, every demographic with or without pre-existing comorbidities. So I, I struggle with and I'm still undecided as to what I'm going to do about that because I don't know if the school can actually Keep, maintain any type of cleanliness to prevent COVID. And I don't know if the kids are able to, I mean, you're going to cram them in this building and we struggle with it even as nurses, like how we don't spread it to each other. So I don't think a kid is able to, I'd rather them go to school for the social element, but the safety element is, I don't think they're able to, they just don't have the responsibility. Have you talked with them about that? If they go back, like, yeah, I have. And they both assure me, oh, they can do it. But they also tell me that about cleaning their room and everything else. So they have no credibility with me. Do you want your kids to go back to in-person? I mean, would that be better than online? I mean, I, there's a lot of factors here, I understand. Right. I do think that in-person is better. And I think they need the not only the social element of school, 
but the instructional element, like learning from a computer and online when we've been classroom oriented since kindergarten is very hard for these kids. I just don't think, even I don't like online learning, but I think that they kind of are able to dismiss it more and not learn as easily. And it'd be interesting to see like how the performance is from that, but I don't, I don't think that online is as good. So will they have some input in your decision or is it just not a practical consideration as much as you might want to give them some say in those? I'd like them to have some input, but I'd like them to also have like some accountability. You know, right now they can do the mask thing, but that's from here to the store. That's not for hours on end during the day. So not touching the mask, not playing right. masks. <laughs> Even adults, I see adults like completely touching the inside of the mask and doing things wrong. So I don't, I don't foresee how kids can possibly do it correctly. As a nurse and based on what you seen treating the virus, do you think in-person classes are even possible, even if we do masks and social distancing and have limited capacity? I think there were, it takes, requires so much to have it be completely COVID safe that it's nearly impossible. I mean, the schools would have to really, really, I mean, even at the hospital element, like we're oxygenating everything and wiping things down and sanitizing things and changing. It's just so hard for the schools to be on top of it and keep a schedule. What if they could do a lot of classes outside? That's been floated a number of places. Yes, if they could keep the kids' attention, by all <laughs> means. <laughs> What if the governor decides that it's not safe for kids to return to school? What issues do you foresee for yourself and your family? Well, it will be difficult to have them learn to the standard that the education should be. And especially for the schools they go to, they do have a high educational standard. And I just don't know how they're going to make that up. So you mean in terms of uh, being able to keep up with what they need to know Right. Being at level and being able to to advance and and stay at level or be even ahead or it would take so much responsibility on these kids to like and kids aren't responsible at any age to to turn in homework. I mean, definitely not at my kids age. They're 10 and 12. So what about for you? I mean, you found this workaround sort of with your work schedule and having to also be their teacher can you do this for the long term? It's going to be exhausting, but I suppose if I have to, I will. I'm, we've, I've talked to a few nurses on the unit I'm on, and we've kind of said like we can buddy up and kind of tackle each other's kids. But we're so across the board in age groups that I don't know if that's actually possible. Do you feel supported right now um, at your employer with given everything you have to do and just your regular job with balancing these new responsibilities with your family? Are you getting the support you need from your employer? I feel like I am. I happen to work on like a really unique unit that I'm also going through a divorce and my unit director works with my days off, my scheduling, you know, what nights I need to work. And the only difficulty is with the actual COVID-19 virus, just, just the way that it works. Bridget, talk about what you were doing before COVID in your job and how that has changed and evolved since the first cases showed up in February. What has that been like for you? It's been really difficult. Before the unit I was on, the unit I'm on, and I've been on this unit, we were a general medicine unit. So we got every single patient imaginable. We got dialysis patients, surgical patients, just medicine patients. In February, we went to COVID rollout. So we were taking the patients as they came in and we would determine whether they had COVID-19 or not. And then if they did, we would determine or didn't, we would float them to a different area of the hospital. So the hospital kept started filling up and then we started taking COVID positive patients, negatives and rollouts. So the, sh- the shift was really extreme. Like at one point a nurse would have go through eight different patients in a night, which is very difficult on a nurse. And it was really hard at first, the scare of COVID-19, just being in that room, kind of knowing the virulence of the virus and being around it and knowing like we're face to face with it. 
now it seems like we've kind of gotten, we're so used to it that we've gotten it down so well. We get our PPE on, we get in the rooms. I mean, I've, within, I've been within inches of COVID-19 positive patients placing nasogastric tubes and such. And I feel fine. I feel as though I'm, I'm okay. I, I don't leave there with that anxiety anymore. Like, oh my God, I, I'm, you know, wake up in the morning with a sore throat and I automatically would assume it was COVID-19 or, but I've never been tested and I've gotten, we've gotten it so down that we just get it done, get in the room, get our PPE on. Even when we have incidents where patients are coding, we get our PPE on, make sure we're safe. We have mirrors up and other nurses to check us. And then we get the HEPA filters on and we go in the room. So I, I feel like we've gotten it so down that we work so cohesive as a unit that it's just, the, the anxiety isn't there as much. How have you tried to navigate that anxiety also with your kids, knowing that you might get sick, they could get sick, the world's turned upside down for them. How have you managed to cope with this the last four months, five months? Right. Yeah, it's it's been hard, but um, we've just kind of vented to each other within my unit. I have anyway. I haven't, or you know, other nurses within the hospital. I really don't put it on the kids, so I don't scare them. But it's it's been difficult. But we've all kind of just vented to each other our fears, and I mean, as kind of been a support group to each other as nurses. Do your kids ask you about what's going on in your job? Yeah, because people would say like, oh, it's not a real thing. It's not this. And I'd say, no, really, like, you don't want to know what I saw last night. You don't want to know, you know, if we had a patient pass away or we had and their age. And, you know, what we see firsthand is completely different than what you're hearing. And I'm telling you the absolute truth. Like this virus isn't to be disregarded in any way, shape or form. Well, Bridget, thank you for talking with us and good luck as we navigate these strange times. Thank you. Back to the line now. We talked about this some last week, but a little more information starting to sprinkle out around what exactly Operation Legend will look like here in New Mexico. You may remember this is a Department of Justice initiative to try to stamp out violent crime in violent cities. Um, and made a lot of headlines by what's happened in Portland, where that has turned into a lot of violent clashes between federal agents and protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement. And a lot of concern here that we'll see a repeat of that here in Albuquerque. There's about 35 federal officers that are going to be coming to town, and uh, state and elected officials uh, doing a lot to try to find out the true scope of what these officers will do will be doing um, and to set some boundaries and things in place and ensure cooperation with local law enforcement agencies. But uh, I want to turn it over back now to the line to talk more about Operation Legend in New Mexico. Now know a bit more about the deployment of federal agents to Albuquerque after an exchange of letters between Mayor Tim Keller and John Anderson, he's the U.S. attorney here for the state, for the area, I should say. Mr. Anderson says he's repeatedly assured the mayor that the city can expect traditional policing in line with existing federal and local partnerships. The mayor says that's what he demands, but said in not so many words that he knows who sets the agenda for federal agents, and he's skeptical. And Serge, it's hard to know what's happening behind the scenes, certainly, but at least publicly does this appear that's at least getting publicly sorted out just a little bit? Is this movement of some sort? I mean, I think it's uh, acknowledgement that, uh, you know, this is, this is more fraught than perhaps uh, the folks who who's created Operation Legend thought it would be, um, and or people caught wind of it and decided to, uh, to address it. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it's sorted out is a strong word. It's paper exchanges, and we'll see what happens. You know, the proof is in the pudding. And I'm, you know, there's, there's many, many, many examples we could say, of, we can probably point to, of, we thought it was going to be one thing, and then it was something else. Right. And so I'm, I'm just as skeptical as anyone about this, you know, these things that have been written down, reflecting the reality on the ground. I'll, I'd be delighted as these things go. Um, but I'll believe it when I see it. Mm -hmm. 
skepticism is a healthy thing in this world right now. Steve Terrell, uh, interestingly, the U.S. attorney chided the mayor a bit and others for language equating uh, agents to stormtroopers, were assuming it was going to be a Portland situation. Uh, is that a fair criticism? Well, I hope that uh, the U.S. attorney is right and it's just a bunch of agents helping local police. Mm-hmm. But how can you not be suspicious? This comes right, you know, after we see all these scenes from Portland uh, beating up uh, uh, protesters, taking them away in weird unmarked vans, uh, having these guys out there throwing tear gas at mothers. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the I think it was the governor who said that the timing's very suspicious and uh, uh, that's an understatement. Um, I hope he's right. But, uh, you know, normally when... Uh, as others have pointed out, Mayor Keller and others have pointed out, normally when uh, the, the feds and uh, come to help uh, locals, it's because they've been requested to come. It's because, uh, you know, they have uh, uh, memorandums of understanding in place and, uh, you know, the rules are set. Um, I, you can't help but think that this is just, uh, you know, the Trump administration trying to stir up uh, protest violence. Um, before the election, mm-hmm. in anything that happens five months before an election, uh, or is that how long it is? Uh, <laughs> so close to an election, right? You got to be skeptical about. It's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing, Crystal. Interestingly, one of the things that has not been answered, Steve just made reference to it, that you know, usually with these agreements, you have an understanding of the work involved, the scope of work. Maybe it's better said, but then also an end date, but. I'm confused by what yardstick, Crystal, should we measure these folks for success? How do we know they're being successful? Yeah, it's, um, I, I don't think that the Trump administration or any administration from in current, like any part of that administration understands success metrics, key performance indicators, or when's the right time to not put themselves in this bad position. So, I mean, to answer that question, it's like, I don't even, I don't even think they even consider it. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, what is what will be successful in this type of operation, um, it's we don't even know why. Like, obviously, there's no explanation for what what have has come to um, to to why they're coming in here, Mm -hmm. you know, and to kind of pivot for a quick second. I think it was also really interesting where Sheriff Gonzalez actually went to Washington, D.C. on a very secret operative trip. And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, we get this understanding that the federal agents are coming in. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sus- very suspicious as well. Um, I'm very suspicious about if whether or not, you know, that type of meeting had a, had an exact influence. I can't imagine the amount of um, uh, what a, a liability that Sheriff Gonzalez has now caused um, and, the, and how people are possibly drawing correlations of these federal agents coming in. Crystal, sure. um, let me ask you a question on that, yeah, on that yeah. point. Um, there's a lot of folks who are very supportive of this move. Let's not kid ourselves here. There's a lot of Albuquerque citizens who have been screaming for something like this for a long time. They're frustrated. They're at the end of it. They're making decisions about whether to leave or not. This has been a pre-pandemic world, I suppose. So how, again, you know, is there a danger that, you know, the zeal to have these folks in by some folks might overrun some of the gains we've made, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, how the police police here in Albuquerque? I've, I've seen other officers and I've seen, you know, former officers comment about, yes, now they feel suddenly safer because the federal agents have come in. Right. But it goes back to what you had said. What exactly is the work plan and mile, milestones of success that these individuals have to prove and also restore faith? Because let's be real, a lot of the reasons why we had problems in the past, it wasn't just because of the officers. It wasn't just because of the jail system. It was an entire entire microcosm um, of problems that just needed to be untangled. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the federal agents are actually the one-stop shop and to solve this entire tangled pro- problematic issue of crime um, in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, honestly, I think it was just another political move. But I do applaud the leaders that we have currently um, that are um, showing that, yes, they'll work it, if they need to, but we're not necessarily welcoming it, nor did we ask for this. So. Right. But on, on Serge, on that point, an interesting point uh, Crystal just made there at the, at the end there, uh, the governor did, after her initial language, did sort of turn around and say, you know, we're willing to work with these folks, but under certain conditions, 
The mayor sort of took the same approach. We're willing to work with these folks, but under the same conditions. Is that good enough? Oh, oh, and then we have, of course, our attorney general saying he's going to be watching for civil rights violations. Do you feel we're covered now? Is that are we in a good system to have these folks come in now? I guess it's as good as I can hope for, right? To know that folks are watching and paying attention and have, you know, received certain assurances. You know, right. as I said before, what happens in real life is, you know, possibly a whole other question. But you know, there's nothing that we could necessarily do to to stop this. And so, um, having having a, an understanding from the get go is, it's not unhelpful. Yeah. I, you know, it, it makes me feel a teeny bit better. I'm curious how you think the rest of New Mexico is considering what's happening in Albuquerque with this uh, with this operation, so to speak. Oh, I mean, I, I suspect the rest of New Mexico is like 35 agents, maybe 30. Why don't you send in, you know, put a zero on the end of that <laughs> um, and see this as, you know, a, a hotbed of crime and a, and whatnot. And that it's just uh, reaping what we sow down here, I guess. Right. I, I would I, agree. I'm getting that same feedback. Yeah, Go ahead, yeah. Crystal. I will say too, I think um, it was really interesting whenever the articles came out. I have half of my team in the Philippines and instantly they immediately thought, well, is everything okay in Albuquerque? Um, we hear that federal agents are going, there must be a genuine problem. I just feel bad for the city because we just can't catch a break on positive news, right? All of a sudden you hear federal agents and now of course it's gonna cause another con level of concern for travel, for uh, travel and tourism, for economic development. Um, it's gonna cause concern for uh, resources, investments, et cetera. So I just, I obviously it's another story that's on helping the, uh, the positive uh, uh, perception of Albuquerque. I appreciate that so much. It was one of my first thoughts when this all came down is we really don't need this perception problem right now, but here it is. All right, the Black Lives Matter movement in New Mexico is still in full swing, of course, even though the public protests have slowed to a trickle. And at the heart of the calls for change are young people. This week, we take time to hear from the next generation of organizers and activists to find out what the movement means to them and what specific reforms they want. I also got the chance to get their reaction to the news about Operation Legend. Black Lives Matter continues to be a, a big deal here in New Mexico. We haven't seen as many in-person protests of late, although we're starting to see them pick up again with Operation Legend coming into town and frustrations and concerns about that. But there is no doubt a lot of work still going on in terms of criminal justice reform efforts around Black Lives Matter. And a lot of that's being led by the next generation of organizers and activists. And we wanted to sit down and talk to a few of them today. And so host Gene Grant, he uh, sat down with two young ladies from Fight for Our Lives, which is a group attached to Southwest Organizing Project that's been very active in Black Lives Matter's protests and conversations and efforts here, as well as Janelle Astorga-Ramos from the Learning Coalition of New Mexico. Fascinating discussion here. They touched a little bit on Operation Legend and their concerns, but they also lay out some of the tangible changes they are seeking through the BLM movement here in New Mexico and uh, how we can all help support their efforts uh, if you're so inclined, how folks can get involved, get educated, and help push the movement forward. Here now, Gene Grant. I'd like to now welcome some guests to continue our conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement here in Albuquerque, our version. Uh, this week, I'd like to invite, or not invite, but thank for coming on, Tatiana Sharif. She's from Fight for Our Lives. Also from Fight for Our Lives is Zoe Kraft. Thank you, Zoe, for coming. And Janelle Astorga-Ramos, Learning Alliance of New Mexico. Thank you for coming as well. Ladies, thank you all. Let me start uh, a question for Tatiana. The Black Lives Matter, the protests kicked up again in earnest here in New Mexico after the death of, of George Floyd, of course. And Fight for Our Lives has been extremely active in organizing and participating in many of those peaceful protests. How has the message been received in your minds? Um, so for me personally, um, I'm just happy that everyone in our community has been able to um, come out and show um, support um, and just seeing support overall, um, not just in America, but um, in the world. Um, it just means a lot to me um, that people are willing to go out and um, fight for us, um, no matter like um, your skin. It just shows that people are really upset about 
um, the police brutality that's facing our nation right now. Um, so for me personally, I just feel like it's about time for some change. And I feel like change is, is happening right now. And it's going to continue happening until we really see some some huge change um, on a government level. So mm, we'll get into that in a little bit, because I'm curious your thoughts on all your thoughts on that. Janelle, let me ask you, the Black Lives Matter movement means a lot of things to a lot of people, certainly, no matter your age. Uh, but what exactly does the movement mean to you? I'm curious. I think for me, it's really um, a bigger movement, right? It's not just about like a Black Lives Matter, but it's changing the whole system. It's recreating what was meant to work against us. So this gives us a platform, not only for those of us who are of color, but you know, our, our white allies as well to come and really be at the forefront of this problem and create systematic change. So I appreciate, like Tatiana said, everybody coming out and just doing what they can in order to make sure that those changes do happen sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. Zoe, let me ask you, um, has Fight for Our Lives developed a list of specific changes or reforms you'd like to see the city of Albuquerque or the state of New Mexico adopt? Yeah, actually, so we have a few. Um, so most recently we put out a statement um, calling for the um, complete, complete disbandment of the Albuquerque Police Department um, so that it can be rebuilt from the ground up. Because I think a huge part of the Black Lives Matter movement lately and the realization that a lot of people are coming to is that um, the system is not just broken, it was designed this way. Um, it was designed to really put minorities, black and brown people um, at a disadvantage. And until we really rebuild from the beginning, it's gonna be really hard to combat those issues. So that's one of our main demands. Um, we also most recently um, are holding an event on August 8th calling for the defundment of APS police because we recognize that that really plays into um, the school to prison pipeline as well. So that's one of our main demands as well. Tatiana, please p uh, feel free to pick up on that. I'm interested in the APS segment, a, a bit of this as well, but hearkening back to APD for a quick second, uh, the things you would like to see happen when it comes to our police department here. Um, yeah, so of course, um, part of that would be like defunding the police, but a lot of people get really scared when they hear those words. And it's not necessarily getting rid of the police at all. Of course, no one wants that, um, but we're basically going to be taking that money and funneling it into different kinds of um, directions and stuff. It's not just um, splashing the water somewhere else on, on the ground. It's basically using that for um, mental health resources and substance abuse and um, public housing and stuff like that. So, um, and using that will also give the police an opportunity to focus on violent crimes and giving um, social workers and people like that um, the capabilities to um, really get out there and help people um, who aren't using like violent crimes and stuff. And that's really giving, um, you know, like basically separating the two and stuff to where people can focus on one thing and um, police can focus on another and stuff. And I feel like there's a lot of confusion on that, um, mm -hmm. but really just need to be able to express those concerns with the community and the police department as well. Um, so that's the message we're really trying to get across, so. Gotcha. Janelle, pick up on the APS portion. Is there a message on this event at the, on the 8th you want to send to the school board here? Um, yeah, actually. So um, Families United for Education has been doing anti-racism trainings with APS and the um, SROs. Um, so I think a message would be that's not enough. We want to divest from the APS police in general. And I know there's a lot of conversation for many years about wanting to provide like their own police department for APS and different things like that. And as a young person who just got out of high school not too long ago, we don't wanna see that because it creates more problems. And what we do wanna see are things like restorative justice practices or mediation and things where we can actually learn from and heal instead of getting criminalized for small things that we shouldn't be forced into the criminal justice system for. Mm -hmm. Three cheers to y'all on restorative justice. Well, maybe we can talk about that at some further point. I'm a big fan. I think it's perfect for New Mexico as well. Um, let me, Zoe, let me ask you this. We now have federal troops or federal agents or federal whatever you want to call them. Not quite sure what the proper term is. 35 of them coming to our city. What's your reaction to that? When I first heard that they were coming to Albuquerque, I immediately thought, well, why is this needed? Because it seems that in comparison to a lot of other cities, Albuquerque has been fairly fairly calm lately. Um, there's even in terms of actions and protests that have been happening, um, we've seen 
really only violence on the part of APD and our police departments and not whatsoever really on the part of protesters. Um, but another major issue that comes to mind for me is federal agents have already had a presence in Albuquerque under Operation Relentless Pursuit, which has been going on and has really already been targeting um, our black and brown communities primarily. And so hearing that more federal agents are going to be sent in um, really concerns me because um, of the amount that these communities have already been targeted and the targeting is going to continue. Tatiana, please feel free to pick up on that. The, the idea that 35 federal agents can somehow solve our crime problem. What, what, what are the dangers that you see of having the presence of these people here? Um, yeah, um, there's a lot of um, dangers, especially since um, I've heard that they're not going to be identifying themselves. Um, so that does put a lot of people at risk, especially um, protesters. And then um, given everything that's going on um, since we're having um, a lot of protests and people really want to put themselves out there and everything um, makes people not want to put themselves out there. So it kind of questions, um, should I be protesting? Should I not be protesting and stuff? Is that what, what, what they came out here to do to stop it? And then also, um, I know a lot of um, APD officers are okay with it as well. Um, we are very understaffed um, with, when it comes to police officers, too. And so um, I just feel like the timing uh, was very suspect, but maybe that's what they wanted. So there's just a lot of confusion when it comes to all of it. Um, I even heard that the, um, the mayor wasn't okay with it either. Um, so I just feel like they need to kind of clarify what they're here for, what their mission is and everything, um, and communicate that with um, the community because we, we have a right to know, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. Good point there. Janelle, you know, this past uh, special legislative session in June, we did see some police reform. As you know, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has signed into law the idea that all um, officers statewide wear body cameras. There's a lot of resistance out there, of course, to this. A lot of uh, heads of departments don't want to do this kind of thing. Your, your sense of body cameras and their importance in all of this, is this a good move? I think it goes back to that funding, right? Um, how do we have enough funding to get body cameras and all these other equipment for law enforcement, but yet we're still struggling to pass legislature around education and funding around that. Um, so that's what my biggest thing is. I think also if we're wanting to get body cameras, we've seen in the past, police can turn those off when they feel necessary. So um, yeah, I think, like I said before, it's just a matter of really building the system all over again because there's many things that we feel are going to be better or um, elected officials feel are going to be more positive for people and it gets worse. So really just talking with the community and seeing what we want or what we think is going to make us feel more safe instead of just making changes that you think or elected officials think are going to be better when they're really not. Mm -hmm. That's a good, that last bit there was, was kind of key. Interesting. I want to allow all of you around the horn here a little bit. Uh, one at a time to kind of talk about this issue. I'll start, um, Zoe, with you, the idea that, you know, sometimes when you have generational changes, the, the resistance from an older generation to just simply be able to see and hear what a younger generation is trying to say and, and trying to point out that, look, there are systems in place that are, you know, honestly, no one person's fault, but, but it, it is all of our faults for participating in it. <laughs> How do you get across to, to older people what the situation is? I Because... I, I think about this sometimes if I was your age, I would be so frustrated right now because it seems like folks come in one of two flavors. Either they really, really get it or they just really, really don't. <laughs> what do you what do you want older folks out there to understand about the frustrations for young people right now? So this is something I've actually been trying to talk with, especially some older members of my family with even, um, because I think that it's important that um, one of the key points I've trying to um, been trying to get across to them is that by being silent about these issues, um, they're actually complacent in um, the systems of oppression that are keeping especially minority communities, black and brown bodies oppressed. Um, as well as, you know, I have some people who I know that are older or in my family who have made comments in the past that I feel are definitely not appropriate. They're extremely on the side of being racist. It's approaching that point. And I think getting them to understand that while um, the excuse is used a lot of times that the older generation is not gonna change their minds, you know, we just shouldn't even try to change their minds at this point. Um, the comments that they make and the things that they put out into the world um, really do cycle into um, contributing to violence against our minority communities. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. 
Real short on time, but a little bit here. Tatiana, please, I want to give you a chance at this and also Janelle. Tatiana, please. Um, for me, uh, it's, it's a little bit different because um, I am an African-American woman and it is, it's 2020 and I literally have to say Black Lives Matter and people are, are saying no. <laughs> and for that, for me, that's, that's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking that I have an 80-year-old great-grandmother and Black Lives still may or may not matter and it's 2020. So that's like a huge shocker, but it's like generation after generation after generation, we're still having this, this fight. And so, you know, after so long, hopefully we're able to, you know, knock down more pillars and everything, but at the same time, um, it's same on the opposing side um, for people who don't believe that, you know, my life matters and everything. So, you know, we just have to continue to fight the good fight and eventually we, we will prevail. So, I mean, that's all we can really do. Um, and I'll pass it on to Janelle because I can go on all, all day on it, so. It's a big one, Janelle. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, it comes down a lot to education. I had like Sati and Zoe, family members who just don't understand. And it's really taking that time, if they're willing to explain to them like what it means. I think there's so much um, just resistance to learn about things because of our generational trauma, right? And not being able to have a voice or speak on things or ask questions. So really, breaking things down and break, breaking topics down and making them understand like the systems really weren't made for you. And this is why, this is the history. This is what actually happened. And a lot of the times that's when it clicks, right? That's when they start getting it. But there are those people like, like they were saying that just don't want to listen. And most of the time you just don't want to waste your time on that because then you get frustrated and you get burnt out. And that's not what you want because you want to continue making those changes for people who, who want those changes, who are going to benefit from them and, really deserve deserve what those changes are going to bring to them beautifully put really beautifully put tatiana sharif from fight for our lives zoe Kraft from fight for our lives and janelle astorga ramos from learning alliance of new mexico thank you guys very much i, I can't thank you enough for this conversation and let me put the offer out there at some point down the road we should probably do this again because again these are continuing conversations they're not going to get solved by this one or the next one we just got to keep going at it so we'd love to have you back again thank you very much Appreciate Thank it. you. Thank you. Last up this week, we head back to the line to talk about an interesting conversation, an interesting discussion. We had a lot of internal discussions about whether or not to do this topic and exactly how to do it, but it has to do with Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin and his group, Cowboys for Trump. You may have heard those names in the press and in the media in recent months, usually in inflammatory ways. Coy Griffin has a tendency to come out and say inflammatory things, and then there's a backlash, and he uh, says that people are misinterpreting him or taking him out of context, but it is definitely heating up the rhetoric in an election year. Uh, a few months ago, it was around a comment from Coy Griffin that the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. She said somehow he just met metaphorically uh, the state Republican Party has condemned the statements, but not necessarily Coy Griffin himself, which has garnered a lot of criticism towards them. Um, and he's back at it this week. He was on his way to Midland, Texas, to go to a Trump rally of sorts uh, there and uh, decided to go on a hike and a three-day fast and then record a video for Facebook where he went on a, quite a long rant, a uh, racist rant, really, in many ways. And uh, a lot of it focused on what he, what's being called the Black National Anthem, which some uh, sports teams are playing before their games, uh, in addition to the National Anthem. And this, of course, all feeds into kneeling and other protests around the National Anthem that we've covered extensively in the past. But basically, Coy Griffin... Uh, said that folks who want to play a black national anthem should all go back to Africa where they can do that there. Uh, again, lots of calls for condemnation of these racist comments. Um, and uh, we, again, we're not interested in having a conversation to bring attention to racist comments, but really to talk about why it's important to not just ignore these sorts of things either. And it really plays into, again, state Republican Party and others who have chosen to um, basically stay quiet on the measure and whether or not that helps public discourse and the democratic process in general. So here now, Jean Grant and the line. 
Otero County Commissioner and leader of the group Cowboys for Trump, Coy Griffin, is back on Facebook and in the headlines this week, saying black football players and others who support the NFL's decision to play Lift Up Your Voice and Sing before week one of NFL football games should, and I quote, go back to Africa and play on an old beat out dirt lot and you can play your black national anthem there, end quote. Griffin insists, he insists that is not a racist statement. Of course, he also made news in the spring for saying that the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat, then quickly adding that he was somehow speaking metaphorically. Mr. Griffin has a pattern of finding headlines by uttering violent racist things and then saying the public shouldn't take them literally or that they don't mean what they clearly mean. Interesting points there, Steve. Should the public believe him at this point? Well, in his defense, uh, he said he'd been fasting for the past three days. So maybe maybe he was just lightheaded. I don't know. Now, you see this pattern in this guy all the time. He, he says something outrageous and then, uh, oh, he, he, I wasn't misquoted, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I had a bad choice of words or, or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's gotten to the point that the dog whistle is now a trombone. So uh, that's... Uh, it's just uh, one thing after another with this guy. I was reading a story in the uh, Alamogordo uh, paper, and um, and uh, he said that he was going to a rally uh, for Trump uh, down in, I believe, Midland, Texas. And um, but he was told by the Trump campaign that uh, they might uh, kind of distance themselves from the Cowboys for Trump. Oh, really? Uh, which, uh, well, to me, when I saw that, I thought, well, here's some. Uh, campaign officials with some uh, common sense or something, but just wait for, you know, if, if they do officially, uh, if they do kind of distance themselves from the Cowboys, I, I bet Trump comes back in the near future and says, I love the Cowboys and everything they say is true. So uh, mm-hmm. who knows? Interesting. Hey, Crystal, he also said in a news article regarding uh, he, Mr. Griffin, sorry, um, he condemned people as vile scum, people who portray the Confederate flag as racist. And that was in a live Facebook video that has since been removed. Um, interesting. Again, like Steve said, he says these things, the pushback comes, and then it's a whole different story after that. It's, very, it's hard to follow sometimes. When you see people that make reactionary commentary... Mm -hmm. And whenever you hear people of leadership saying, well, don't take me seriously with the, with what I said specifically, or whenever they make a racist comment, but deny it being racist, you wonder, are they elected to office because of their credibility or lack thereof? Or are they elected to, or are they in their position? And maybe their mental state might not actually be of the best mental state to actually serve. So obviously I, I would condone, uh, not condone his actions. I, I, would, I would hope that he would be properly reprimanded in some way, shape or form because uh, he was elected to lead and he is not leading by saying racist remarks like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, you wonder if, and especially if the Trump campaign is telling him that he's becoming a liability, I would hope that his community would also see him as a liability as well. Even though he might have um, wins um, in his political record or things that he has done successfully in Otero County, good for him. But at the end of the day, um, a reputation is a reputation and people will, remember, will be remembering him for that rather than the good things he might have done for Otero County. Mm-hmm. Hey, Serge, you know, back in March when he said the, the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat, the state Republican Party actually said without mentioning him or the Cowboys for Trump by name that, you know, violent speech isn't acceptable which is interesting when you really think about it. But you've also got politicians out there like Yvette Harrell who have been side by side with Mr. Griffin in political ads and such. Is there like a risky association for Republicans with this man? And at some point, is there a line where they say, you know what, dude, this has gone just a little too far here? I mean, yeah, you've seen that a little bit, you know, in the last few days, <clears throat> folks saying we're going to distance ourselves from you and that doesn't represent us. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's only it's not a liability until it is right when he says the quiet part out loud, and you know the the rhetoric and the the ideas that he has that he's pushing and coming up to the line are they're not wildly you know they're not 
they're not that unknown or unfamiliar. This, the ideas he says, right? I'm not racist, you're racist, or, right? The most racist thing you can do is point out that someone is racist in this, in this you know, worldview and this, this political view. And I think that we see the, we see the sort of the, the core principles and the baseline ideas embraced and propagated. Um, it's just when you get, you go a little too far and people start to, to distance themselves from you. He's found that, he's finding out where that line is, I guess. Right, exactly. But, but you know, it's not a wholesale disavowal of everything that he says. It's of uh, the the parts where he just goes a little bit too far, even for the most strident uh, folks. Mm-hmm. I don't know if if this was nineteen ninety something, uh, I might think, yeah, the Republicans are going to really distance themselves from this guy. Uh, but uh, you know, this is the age of Trump, and. Uh, Trump does say the, the quiet things out loud and uh, his uh, followers encourage that. So, I mean, it could hurt with independence, but uh, I don't know. The we, I think the silence of the state GOP on this issue and, and Coy Griffin actually criticized the state uh, Republican Party in that story uh, from Alamogordo I was talking about. Mm-hmm. He says they're not enthusiastic enough. They're not supporting their rallies. And uh, so uh, they're catching up on both sides. But uh, yeah, they, they have been very, very silent on this. Just imagine had uh, Brian Egoff or uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham said something like that. Um, you know, the, the, the press release would have been the, uh, on that would have been the speed of light. I couldn't even imagine. Absolutely. <laughs> it would have been hand delivered instantly to everybody. Unreal. <laughs> hey, Chris, I want to make mention to the to the viewers, of course, that Maybe a little bit of uh, pulling back the curtain here. We did debate whether to, in fact, do this as a subject or not. I mean, some people might be watching saying, and quite rightly saying, why are you giving this man any kind of attention at all? This is like crazy racist stuff. And, you know, does it, but does it, does this provide an opportunity here in New Mexico, Crystal, to kind of talk about these things in a deeper way? You know, in fact, a lot of folks who might be inclined to support Mr. Griffin, they don't necessarily get called out that much in, in, in years past. It feels a little bit different now. It feels like folks are willing to call others out a little bit. Is there some positive inside of this to you? Um, I, any issue that, you know, that any issue when it d- deals with, um, you know, le- people of, of office saying very radical comments and commentary um, are, are needed in society to realize, you know, you, you don't know how bad it is until somebody really does it poorly, right? And, and you don't know how good it is until somebody does a really fantastic job. I think it's healthy for debate like this in our communities, especially in rural and also urban New Mexico, um, and to really you know showcase what is a good example of leadership and what's a bad example of leadership. Mm-hmm. And though some may disagree, I, I totally see the point that you all debated in, at New Mexico and Focus about whether or not we should bring up this issue because it, it sheds light on, on racism, but how do we teach our kids about racism if they don't even know what racism looks like? So. Good point, good point there. Quick note to the viewers as well. We asked Yvette Harrell and the Republican Party for a reaction to Mr. Griffin's video. They did not respond, but we did try. Thanks to our line panelists for all the hard work this week, of course. I'll be back in a moment with some final thoughts. Well, that'll about do it for this week. Before we go, we want to do a couple of reminders. First and foremost, this week we were thrilled to launch an environmental newsletter with our land reporter, Laura Paskus. She does monthly reports, sometimes more than that. She's done a lot with COVID-19 in recent months as well, but she's the preeminent uh, journalist really in the state on environmental issues. And so we want you to sign up if you want to get updates from her. She'll have not just uh, news updates on things that are going on or stories that we've reported on in the past. She'll let you know about public comment periods on various topics, resources, things to help you be better informed on all things New Mexico and the environment. So you can head to nmpbs.org or newmexicoinfocus.org and you can sign up to get that newsletter in your inbox every Tuesday. And we did a Facebook Live with her and senior producer Matt Grubbs this week to talk a little bit more about what we're hoping to accomplish with the newsletter. So we encourage you to go there and check that out. Follow us on Facebook if you don't already and join our Facebook group 
focus on New Mexico, get engaged with us as we develop weekly topics for the show. Also, you can follow us on YouTube and Instagram and Twitter. We're in all those places. Final reminder, next Tuesday morning, tune into the NMPBS Facebook page, although it'll be on New Mexico and focus as well as we um, help live stream the Supreme Court hearing on uh, the governor and her administrations and their authority in a time of a health pandemic and a health um, crisis. So we'll have that for you and lots of discussion about that next week as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you again next week.